This parable is confusing. Well, many of Jesus' parables are confusing, but this one is confusing in a kind of upside-down, doesn't-make-sense, seems-to-go-against-our-values kind of way. Why is the dishonest manager seemingly praised for his dishonesty? Of course, there are always things that seem upside down for us in Jesus' parables. Samaritans are good. Ninety-nine sheep are left in the wilderness to go look for the one that is lost. Prodigal sons are forgiven even before they can ask for forgiveness, and so on. But usually, the values that are underneath the stories, even the values that seem to run against our usual way of functioning in the world, seem right. Grace seems right. Seeking seems right. Forgiveness and restoration seem right. But dishonesty? Let's review the story again just to make sure we heard things accurately. There's a rich man who has a manager for his estate. Somehow the rich man finds out that the manager has been mismanaging things, squandering his property is the way one familiar Bible translation puts it. So he decides it's time to have the manager give an accounting of what's been going on in advance of firing the man from his position. The manager, realizing that his days of employment are numbered, thinks to himself, well, shoot, what am I going to do now? I can't become a laborer. I don't have the strength. And begging, well, that would be embarrassing. So he comes up with this plan to ingratiate himself with the customers he's been dealing with on behalf of the estate. His logic, maybe if I take care of them, they will take care of me. He calls each one into his office in turn and offers to reduce their bill with the unspoken understanding that what he saves them now in their business dealings, they will repay him personally in the future. After the discounting is done, the owner of the business, the rich man, finds out what the manager has done, and guess what? He commends him. Now, he doesn't exactly say, way to be dishonest, but he does say, way to be shrewd, which means way to be clever, way to be astute, way to be quick-witted. In the original Greek text, the word translated into English as shrewd is probably most literally translated as mindful or prudent. But shrewd seems to fit both because of its meaning and its origins in our language, in English. Shrewd comes from Middle English, and at that time, it meant evil in nature or character. Over time, it came to mean cunning, and now, of course, As I said a moment ago, it means something more like clever or discerning. It's being wise, but in a more worldly way, I guess. As I was preparing the sermon this week, I tried to think about shrewdness in my own life. When have I been shrewd? That is, when have I been cunning, maybe even with an edge of dishonesty, in order to advance my cause? and make best use of my resources. I could come up with two memories. One was when I was in ninth grade and trying out for the high school soccer team, and I looked around the squad and around the field and noticed what positions were already filled. 
And when the coach asked if there was someone who could play left wing, that spot being open in the starting lineup, as far as I could tell, I immediately raised my hand. Now, I had never in my life played left wing. I am not naturally left-footed, although I'm fairly ambidextrous. In any case, I could kick well with my left foot. I could run. I could see the field. I understood the game. So when the coach asked, does anyone play left wing, I decided then and there that I did. Did he need to know that I had never played that position before? What he didn't know wouldn't hurt him, I reasoned. And you know what? Maybe he did know, or maybe he didn't. But I was effective enough out there in my newly adopted position that I started the very first game of my high school soccer career at left wing and never looked back. It was shrewd. I saw a small opening and I wedged myself through it. Who knows how long I might have been sitting on the bench if I had dutifully claimed my typical position, which would have put me in line behind other players. Several years later, I was working at a summer job at a DuPont estate outside of Wilmington, Delaware, a gardens and museum. I was part of the grounds crew, which meant weeding and push mowing. There was a crew of us college-age kids who weeded the beds of the gardens and push mowed the tight areas, while a crew of older men drove the riding mowers across the larger expanses of grass. I did not really like the work. I did not particularly like the crew I was working with. One day, the supervisor came to us over lunchtime. Does anyone know how to drive a dump truck? Everyone got an eager gleam in their eye. He continued, it's a manual transmission. The light went out of the other crew members' eyes, but I raised my hand. I can do it. Had I ever driven a dump truck? Of course not. But I knew how to drive a manual transmission. Albeit the manual I was used to driving was on my dad's tiny 1974 Plymouth Cricket. A little blue compact car that was the product of some unlikely and short-lived cooperative effort between the Plymouth and Dotson companies in the early 70s. Honestly, I knew nothing about whether driving the little subcompact cricket would be anything like driving the large dump truck, but then again, faced with a whole summer of pushing a push mower versus driving a dump truck, I was shrewd enough to know that if I could pull it off, my summer was just about to get a whole lot better. I was given the keys. It turned out that driving the dump truck was a short-lived assignment, but in the process I got connected to the arborist for whom I was hauling the cuttings of his tree trimming. And after the initial assignment was completed, he told the supervisor that he needed me to help him the rest of the summer, driving the stake truck and working with him on pruning the huge lilacs. It helped that he didn't like to drive and that he liked me well enough. So instead of cutting grass, I spent the summer amongst the lilacs and the azaleas. My shrewdness in both instances paid off for me, but I question now, well, I wonder, I'm not entirely sure, I feel a little guilty. Not about the outcomes, I certainly used the advantage to do some good, but about the path I took to get there, was what I did okay?
On the matter of shrewdness, I did a little more digging, asking the internet the question, is being shrewd positive or negative? The answer that came back was negative. Here's the quote, shrewd is similar to astute as both words are used to describe sound judgment and practical intelligence, but since shrewd is usually used to describe someone who is sharp and intelligent, but potentially underhanded at the same time, it does have a negative connotation. Sharp and intelligent, but potentially underhanded at the same time. Maybe less concerned with the moral ideal than with the immediate issue. Maybe more directed for the need for problem solving than for purity. And that's interesting to think about if we set this morning's parable back into its broader scriptural context. In verse 1 of this morning's scripture, it says that the parable is directed to the disciples, but by the time we get to the end of the text, we find out that the Pharisees have been listening in. In verse 14, Luke reports that the Pharisees reacted to the parable of the dishonest manager by ridiculing Jesus. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him, Luke reports. Lovers of money? Luke says they were lovers of money. Is that true? Perhaps. But they might also have been described as faithful religious folk. And in that, lovers of ideals, lovers of theology, lovers of right and wrong in the realm of spiritualized understandings. But the question that Jesus kept pushing them with was this, could they also see themselves as being lovers of those persons who live in the realm of the nitty-gritty realities of daily life? People for whom calculations made solely on unambiguous morality at best feel like a luxury and at worst like an impossibility. Jesus, as you know, was a deep thinker, certainly a spiritual guy, but also a very practical person, and therefore not against putting rules within the context of realities with the agenda that always, even the smallest, the weakest, the least advantaged, should have a chance. For example, listen to these couple of verses from Luke 14, again speaking of scriptural context, not long before today's verses from Luke 16, from Luke 14, 1 to 5. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then in front of them, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him on his way. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. Now, back to our parable and the seeming praise for shrewdness. The manager who knows that he is in trouble with his employment status 
isn't by the end of the story celebrating his cleverness or promoting an agenda of dishonesty. What he is actually doing is taking steps to pave a way for future survival. And that's what the boss recognizes. That is, that the manager who's been sitting with his feet propped up on the desk for too long with either too much laziness or an inclination to take the future for granted or an underlying dishonesty perhaps in the dealings he's been doing all along now finally takes his feet off the desk and puts them on the floor and he makes his move toward the future. And maybe it's not that he's dishonest that matters the most in this story as it is that he is finally motivated, astute, action-oriented, aware that today doesn't guarantee tomorrow, and willing to get his life moving, as if his life depended on forward movement, which, in fact, it does. Your life depends on forward movement. Sometimes you just aren't paying attention to that. Or the crisis hasn't come that's exposed that truth. But the dishonest manager gets it, and for this he gets praise And maybe in the context, part of what is going on here is that Jesus, in a subtle way, is tweaking the nose of the nearest Pharisee. You say you're honest through your commitment to religious tradition and religious purity, he might be suggesting. But have you thought of this? Maybe not everyone has that luxury and a reluctance to break the rules for the sake of the ox or the child who has fallen in the well, for example, honestly isn't all that admirable Maybe some of us have, in an entitled way, had our feet up on the desk for too long. But the day is coming when that will no longer be possible. And maybe it's time to give a little shout-out to the shrewd, the survivor, the person who's willing to heal on the Sabbath against the law, to pull the ox out of the well, to rescue the child, Maybe it's time to think in an expanded way about what character means, especially character in a time of crisis. Is it enough to be bound to our traditions, or might we be bold when needed? One commentator on this text writes, the steward or the manager as we've called him is a model for those who must accept the full human dilemma of surviving amid ambiguous situations and not collapsing when faced with destruction. And as I think about that, something rings true. Often like the good religious folk who came to listen to Jesus so they could criticize or pick apart his teaching, We want things to be clear. We want right behavior upheld, good rewarded, bad punished. We want affirmation, not challenge, clarity, not ambiguity. Ambiguity does not appeal to the sense of self-righteousness that exists in each of us. But then things get messy. And maybe we seek 
instead of being creative, to re-entrench ourselves in the familiar, in our own self-justifications. But the point that Jesus makes over and over again, and we've seen it so much in the Gospels that it shouldn't surprise us anymore, is that with the coming of God's kingdom, new realities open up. Some we like and some we do not like, but new realities nonetheless. In the midst of those new realities, they're still right and wrong, but sealing the borders or clutching tighter to the account books doesn't necessarily bring more security. Can we put a stop to our yearning for simpler times? and then engage fully, completely, and creatively with whatever's right in front of us? Might a little shrewdness be in order? There's no sense in just drifting along. Instead, what can we do even when it comes to the point when there seems that there's nothing we can do? How clever can you be? One more story. I remember being in a clergy group conversation some years ago when one of the other pastors told us a story about a parishioner in her church. The woman was 104 years old and coming to the end of her life. She made her prearrangements for a funeral with one of the local funeral homes in her town, the one at which the funeral directors were members of her church. There was a complication, however, a conflict, actually. The woman who was the executor, or to be the executor for the elderly woman's estate, was also a member of the church, but she worked for the competing funeral home across town. And not only that, but the owners of the one funeral home where she had made her prearrangements had at one time been the mentors and supporters of the younger woman who had taken a job with their crosstown rivals. There was some bad blood. But the elderly woman was what we might call crafty. Maybe she was a rascal. She told the woman who was her executor that she would be keeping her prearrangements that she had already made with the original funeral home, not changing to the place of the executor's employment, even though this meant that the executor would have to deal closely with her former friends and mentors. You will, she said at 104, you will carry out my wishes. And when you go to my funeral, you will reconcile with these other members of our church. And so it was. The funeral was held at the funeral home owned by the people who had once mentored the younger woman who was the executor of the estate, and she went through all the steps of working with them to carry out the elderly woman's wishes, including the final instruction, and you will be reconciled. Manipulative? By some measures, yes, I guess so. A pathway of grace? By God's measurements, yes, I guess it was that as well. And sometimes that's the way it is, the way it has to be, if we are to live in the best way into the day that is coming. 
The path we choose may not look all that admirable to others, but once our feet are swept off the desk, we know we need to figure out how to stand up and walk out the door. And so we do. 104 years old, and she had a plan and a purpose up until and beyond the day she died. That's being shrewd all the way to the end. Did the accounts manager do the right thing when he went behind his boss's back using the assumption by the debtors that he was still empowered to collect the debts in order to cut some deals? No, probably not. But what he did do was finally live with an eye to the future, recognizing that change brings challenge and that life moment by moment cannot be taken for granted and cannot be wasted. The boss admires the way the manager finally grabs the future by the throat. Finally, the businessman is probably thinking, my employee shows some of the energy and effort, interest and awareness that he should have shown all along. Too bad he had to be fired to become fired up. So I suppose the questions for us run in a similar vein. What does it take for us to finally get fired up? What kind of future do we want? And how are we living today in that direction? In some ways, the manager in Jesus' parable is no role model for us, but in one critical way he is, when the future is threatened, he doesn't lash out. Instead, he asks the crucial question, what can I do today that will help me live in the best way tomorrow? And he steps outside his former habits of complacency and disconnection, and he seeks to energize his future by engaging the people around him and engaging the day in which he is living. And may it be so for us. May God provide us the grace and the imagination and the determination and even the creativity we need to be fully who we are and who we are meant to be when that moment comes when we can no longer sit with our feet on the desk and must instead stand up and walk out the door. Amen.